Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Just when you thought Art Lewin was over, we are throwing a special surprise your way. That's right. Don't get rid of your spooky decor just yet, because today we are talking about hauntology and Dia de los Muertos with the one and only Dr. Christina Cruz Gonzalez. You've heard me talk about this hauntology seminar for way too long, so now we are bringing the seminar to you. Let's Art Pop Talk. Hello, Gianna. Hi. I'm in a new space right now. I know. So. It's so weird to, to see you with a different background. <laughs> it is a much messier background. Uh, when we have the recording with Christina, you'll see that it is uh, just a blank wall. But right now, Gianna, for the intro, she gets the messy guest room vibe with Ollivander scratching at the door because he's not used to like closed doors in an apartment ever. How is Mr. Ollivander handling the new apartment? You know, he really loves it actually. Like I think he's like adjusting very well and he we have these like great windows everywhere. So I think he's really enjoying looking at all the all the windows because we're right by Boston Common. So we have like a bunch of people walk by all the time. We're on like a pretty main street by the park and there's always people like walking their dogs, you know, in the park or just like people running. And today we, John and I are recording this intro on Halloween. And um, today there was like a big race, like a costume race. So people were like running in their costumes and stuff like that. And so Ollivander got like a very good look of all these people <laughs> dressed up in like wacky colors and costumes today. And he was just like, looking down the window one person after the other oh so stimulating Little yes he has a lot to look at watching which is nice yes he gets to people watch like all day and he's enjoying all the he he really likes the new rug we bought for the living room too he enjoys like sleeping on that most of the time <laughs> kitten i'm not gonna be able to see kitten on christmas you're not bringing him are you I don't know. I don't think I will. I think he'll be able to keep Andrew some company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But you can come up here and visit. Yeah. You just got <laughs> done visiting with Miss Audrey Kaminsky. Heard that was a good trip. I did. It was very fun. She was my first guest in the new city. So Audrey and I went to a live show, which was pretty exciting yeah. to go to to enjoy some live theater and actually this coming week on Wednesday Andrew and I are going to see Hades Town. I don't I don't know what that is. I don't Oh I'm sorry. really? What it, is it's like, I mean I oh, I it's the new big Broadway show but it's actually showing in Boston so we get to go see it in Boston which is oh, exciting. Cool. So yeah, we'll be enjoying um I feel some like theater this week as well. Yeah, I feel like Boston or just some of like, not like smaller East Coast cities, but cities that aren't New York, you get a lot of those good like preview shows before they like make it to Broadway too. So that'll be fun to look out for like in the future. Yeah, I know that Boston does do a lot of previews for Broadway shows. So mm -hmm. um, that's something that I had mentioned to Andrew too, which I'm excited about. But it seems like concurrently, there's like obviously the main production in New York, but it's also showing here. Interesting. Well, let us know how that goes. 
All right. Well, I am very excited about today's art pop talk. I think it is a good combination of prior APT Art Loween. Um, so you all are going to get to meet Dr. Christina Cruz Gonzalez, who was a professor of art history for both Bianca and I at OSU, and just an incredible person and, and mentor and educator to both Bianca and I. So we're just so incredibly honored to have her on the podcast. Yeah, I feel like Gianna and I have talked about the, the influences of this class for so long. And it was really just one of those full circle moments that we love to have here at APT. And talking with Christina was was fantastic. And she's she's so brilliant and amazing. And she's an amazing art historian and instructor. And I just really valued the time that we, I spent with her throughout my my collegiate years. And it was just, she was so influential to me. And I know she was to you as well. And looking back that class, hauntology in particular, really influenced the way that I started to view the world as I left grad school. And just thinking about how influential that was and then getting to speak with her here on the podcast was was amazing. So you guys are just going to love this episode. And even Gianna was like saying she feels like she got kind of a secondhand experience from the class when I was always talking about it. And now I feel like the art pop tarts are also going to get a hauntology seminar, you know, little teaser, if you will. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to, uh, to either take a hauntology seminar or course wherever you are, or, um, you know, Christina throughout the episode has a lot of different recommendations for you all as well, which we will link in our resources page for you guys. So you can do a little investigating on your own. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, as you said, Bianca, there's something about this episode that felt extremely humbling to me. As you mm. mentioned, I felt like I did learn so much secondhand. And I think it is that humble reminder that you like truly don't know who you're affecting um, and the ideas that you're putting out to the world. And, and when you actually have those people that are excited about that and then sharing those with other people in your field or that share that common interest. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. And it literally has evolved into this like broad scope of vocabulary and, and concepts that I, I still use today and and still exploring. Um, so like truthfully, like Christina has no idea. I just feel like everyone we bring on the podcast is like, you have absolutely no idea. <laughs> like, really? How really? Like incredible how you, you have are. changed my life. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and, and I also I, I mentioned it in the interview with Christina, but we do talk about hauntology so much and how like we are still learning about it and peeling off these layers. And I think I do want to keep in mind, we do talk about these concepts so much, hauntology, like consumerism, feminism. Mm -hmm. And I never want those things to just be a one-off. You know, it's ontology, it's ontology, it's ontology, it's feminism, it's feminism, it's feminism. You know, our perspective on it, and even just in our conversation with Christina, it totally like skewed my viewpoint about how I view certain works of art, in particular death portraiture. So mm -hmm. like, it was just, it's just one of those moments where like you love to learn and discover new things. So I hope you guys get as much out of it as we did. Yeah, absolutely. And we are also going to link some, like I said, resources for you guys provided by Christina in the conversation. And throughout the week, we'll be posting images and resources from her as well. So we are going to take a little break. And whenever we come back, we will be joined by the brilliant 
phenomenal, amazing Dr. Christina Cruz Gonzalez. Welcome to the show. I am just, I'm so excited that you're here. Gianna and I, first of all, can't talk about hauntology and spooky stuff without thinking about you. And it is just truly an honor to have you here on this show. So can you introduce yourself to the Art Pop-Tarts? Sure. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm Christina Cruz-Gonzalez, and I'm an associate professor of art history at OSCN. Oh, Christina is literally the most wonderful art history professor I've had in my entire life. So little fangirl moment over here. I uh, can still change your grade to an A. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not going to argue with you. Um, Christina, would you please talk with us a little bit about your research interest in the field of art history? Sure. So... In art history, I specialize in the early modern period, which is 1500 to 1800, roughly, and I concentrate mostly on um, Spanish America, which includes what today is Latin America and the Philippines, but also parts of what is today part of the United States, right, the Southwest area and Florida as well. And so I look at visual culture from that perspective, uh, mostly sacred images and uh, miraculous images, images that don't just exist for us to view, but actually perform, do something, right? They heal, they protect, they um, sometimes deal with the paranormal in, in unusual ways. Um, so we talk about this paranormal activity within art history. We've talked about it on the show and last year during Halloween is where Gianna and I really got to talk about the influences that we've had, that I've had because of your hauntology seminar. And I just, I am always telling people about this seminar. Like I went into it being like, as a scaredy cat, kind of scared to, to take a class about ghosts, but coming out of it, it was, it was so amazing. So because of that seminar, I not only found this like deep appreciation within this kind of like new sector of art history, but I really began to appreciate the spectral in our everyday lives. Um, so we, before, you know, we start getting into the nitty gritty of this kind of spooky subject, can you talk about the importance of examining the spectral within art? Sure. So that seminar, and I've only taught it one time, I'd love to teach it again, um, was designed as a graduate seminar, which is why you were in there. But we also had a few undergraduates, kind of stray students, and they had <laughs> no idea, you know, what they were getting themselves into. They Not at all. <laughs> it was hilarious, right? So I think from their perspective, we were just going to talk about ghosts and, um, you know, maybe Netflix and some more popular series <laughs> that deal with ghosts. And they had no clue that there's this whole kind of disciplinary take on, you know, basically the spectral, right? What is um, kind of absent, but still present, a kind of trace, 
uh, and in between. And so they looked at the reading list and they were like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? Right. And they like confessed. <laughs> They're like, oh, you know, we made a mistake. We didn't know it was a real course with tons of reading. And so I think like everyone came to the course, myself included, you know, from our own vantage points. And um, and then the course kind of worked together to um, bring in those different perspectives and allow students to kind of carry on with their own avenue and line of inquiry in terms of the research. So some people did write papers on that Netflix series. Other people were like more taken by trauma and how it is that we study trauma. So hauntology, um, this is a word that's coined by Derrida. Um, so that gives you an idea of kind of the level of kind of critical inquiry that we were dealing with. Um, you know, hauntology is basically the study of what is not kind of materially or ontologically kind of always within reach, you know, so it could be the absent, um, the spectral, it's sometimes called uh, the trace. Uh, oftentimes it's something uh, aligned with trauma. And so what I loved about our course uh, were the field trips and going mm -hmm. to Tulsa, for example, um, and looking at uh, where the race massacre took place, right? So kind of studying and viewing and experiencing this area, but also meeting with artists like Crystal Campbell and seeing how artists are kind of producing um, works that respond to that uh, haunting, to that trauma, to the absence, um, and how they're kind of working to make it present in a way. And so as an art historian, um, this is, you know, I love this idea because, um, you know, in my own work, uh, trauma is very present with the conquest of Mexico. But I think for some other students in the course, they thought of it also in terms of kind of the genocide uh, of indigenous communities within our own mm -hmm. United States and in Oklahoma in particular. You know, so how can we as historians deal with these acts and with artistic responses to these acts uh, in a way that's, you know, ethical and responsible, but also um, when the odds are so against us, right? Because these, many of these historical events are driven precisely by, you know, erasure <laughs> and the, the goal of erasure and it's real, right? So kind of how do you delve into uh, projects and archives and artworks um, that deal with absence? So it was a very complicated course definitely a graduate level course. The undergrads got off easy by doing the reports on Netflix series and whatnot. But honestly, I know very little about, you know, these films and these series. Um, and so I wanted to learn that bit also and seeing how popular culture um, kind of works with some of these ideas and massages them and kind of curates them for a wider audience. Um, and they're quite smart uh, about it, right? And so mm -hmm. I thought that was really cool and really good. Yeah, I finally just watched Scream for the first <laughs> time after we had our discussion with Lynn last week. Mm -hmm. And just all of these ideas that Scream is presenting. And, and like, I used to take it for granted, you know, it's just a scary movie that's like, you know, not really uh, doing anything in terms of visual culture or, or film history and things like that. But it's just so self-involved and just situ situates itself within 
its own genre and lineage, just like different pieces of art do, just like any other piece of visual culture does. So I, I think this is just like super fascinating. Yeah, well, I agree. And it's also such, it's such, I mean, it's just a, another word that, that we can add to our vocabulary that adds such a great entry point and another perspective to look at the variety of topics that you just suggested. We can talk about it in the physical world, but also in the artistic world and how you just stated to handle that responsibly. But for my own purposes too, you know, I was not in this class, but I made a joke for our last Halloween that I learned so much <laughs> secondhand from Bianca and, and from this course that I really, really used it uh, very strongly in my senior show. So it, it just, that class really did affect even the students that, that weren't in there. But because it provided such an entry point for myself being ignorant to this terminology before this class, uh, how would someone who doesn't have that background in art history or any visual training start to engage with hauntology? And you did mention seeking out those pop culture references too. Yeah, so... I think everyone engages with ghosts in some way, right? Um, because mm -hmm. you could be my age and remember watching, you know, Poltergeist <laughs> for the first time, or you could be, you know, 20 years old and watch these Netflix series, or you could be playing the Ouija board, you know, I hope mm -hmm. not too often, um, you know, and engage <laughs> with uh, the spectral that way. Um so ghosts are like really present in our imagination, right? Ghostbusters. Um, so we already do it on some level, uh, but we don't really think about it. And we don't really kind of right. uh, critique it. And, um, and also as art historians, because we're so invested in what's visually present, we hardly want to give any space to absence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and how do we step mm -hmm. out there? You know, what looms? Um, and so it's difficult for us as an art historians, but I think for any student or reader who wants to kind of begin a serious journey into this, um, I would begin with, for instance, uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, right? And our course read that. Um, you know, for many students, I would say most, it was their first time reading this book. And it was you know, traumatizing, I think, for many people. It's a tough book, but it's like a real kind of, um, you know, you're jumping into ghost and the ghostly and the spectral um, and the traumatic uh, when you're reading that book. If you want a more kind of, um, you know, academic, uh, critical uh, take on hauntology, I would suggest uh, Sadia Hartman's uh, Venus in Two Acts. Um, which is also a reading that we had in the course. And it talks about, you know, the archive and the relationship between um, violence and the archive and how we as readers and historians and archivists uh, um, deal with this kind of repository without reinscribing the violence that um, basically lays at its foundation, you know, and this is very important for folks, um, whether you're dealing with colonial Latin America and um, the conquest and, and the kind of genocide involved with that or with slavery in the United States. So um, those two texts, you know, um, Toni Morrison's and Sadia Hartman, I would say uh, should be at the beginning of one's kind of entry point into this topic for sure. 
And then maybe the poltergeist of the Netflix. <laughs> and the absence of ghosts is something that really does fascinate me because in you know the midst of spooky season, we've talked about so much that Bianca and I are such scaredy cats. And I was talking with my partner, Theban, and he kept saying, but why are you scared? Like, what is the why? Like, what is this like metaphorical like hold that these like hypothetical ghosts have over you? And I think that was just it. Whether it is a literal sense or a medical metaphorical sense, it's still something that I am engaging with and something that I am fearing, even if it is real or unreal, I'm still having a physical and bodily reaction to it. Right. I'm a scared to get too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you know, so anything freaks me out. I still get freaked out uh, just thinking about certain films, not even watching them, but if I just think about The Exorcist, I'll be like totally freaked out and I won't be able to sleep. I'll have to turn the lights on and, um, you know, it's all over. But it's interesting that that was, you know, your partner's response. Like, why um, mm-hmm. bother you? Or what is it about it? You know, that's scaredy. That makes you a scaredy cat. I kind of was in a similar situation where I was really afraid of a neighbor once <laughs> when I lived in Mexico City and she kind of put a hex on me and I didn't know what to do and uh, she was kind of you know from my perspective really insane and so I talked to family members that um you know, have more experience with what to do in these situations. Uh, and they said, well, you know, you could try this, you put a bucket of water at your door every night. And in the morning, you know, you toss it and um, you could refill it uh, at nighttime. And then you could also get a particular kind of wood and make a cross with a red ribbon and put it on the inside of your door. And you could also, you know, they started listing different things for uh, kind of combating uh, this witchcraft. <laughs> and, and then at the very end, they said, or you could also not believe. And, wow. um, you know, that's uh, also an option. And, and nothing could happen, basically, to you, if you mm-hmm. just go with that option. Um, yeah. so, wow, okay, yeah. I could also not believe. <laughs> that is fascinating. That's, yeah, I, Gianna, I also like what you brought up just in terms of I think that, um, my very best friends who are like, you know, big horror lovers and they love that sense of adrenaline that they get when they feel scared. But I think something that was also brought up in the class is like, not everybody feels the effects of trauma. And I think what was great about the course is how we talked about trauma being kind of ingrained in people's DNA. And that is kind of this absent presence that, you know, you know, it's, it's a type of ghost, but it, it is, physically embedded within you. And so some people are going to experience fear differently based on like their DNA. And I think that was another really interesting thing just to put fear and trauma and hauntology kind of in a, in a new perspective. Like it's, you cannot believe, and that's an option in some instances, but sometimes it's, it's bound to you in this right. way. Yeah. It's real and there's no denying it. Mm-hmm, right. kind of living it <laughs> mm-hmm, right right 
So um, speaking of, of ghosts and the impact that they, that they have and how they live with us today, I was wondering if you could talk with us about the visual legacy of Dia de los Muertos in art and art history. Sure. So we're upon one of the most important holidays um, in Mexico and in many countries in Latin America increasingly. And so that is Day of the Dead, November 1st and November 2nd. Uh, for many people from Mexico, particularly, uh, they'll say it's their favorite holiday, um, actually. It's a very joyful event. It's a celebration. It's a time when we remember the people uh, who have uh, left us in this world and wel- and we welcome them back, basically, on the 1st and the 2nd of November in a party. So it's not an individual affair. It's a real kind of communal kind of memory um, making uh, a performance of that memory. I think lots of people have seen the film Coco and it's a very cute, yeah. you know, Disney Pixar film and whatnot. It's also really uh, sad and, and true uh, at its core. You know, I think it really conveys uh, the meaning of Day of the Dead very well. You know, remember me, uh, this is a pact, right? Day of the Dead kind of canonizes that pact we have with the people we love who have left us, that we will remember them and we will kind of materialize that um, as much as possible uh, on November 1st and November 2nd. So this takes uh, the form of music and food, uh, community and uh, altar making, right? And having this big kind of colorful altar in one's home or in one's kind of uh, public square oftentimes, uh, where pictures of the dead could sit and be uh, venerated uh, and and come to life to some extent. So it's not this gowlish, um, you know, scary event. It's a very kind of happy event. Uh, we want the dead to visit us uh, on these days because we want them to kind of get that taste of life um, that they once had, if only for this short period. And we want to be there for it. You know, we want to be there mm-hmm. with them. So in art history, um, usually everything is kind of pushed under this umbrella of Day of the Dead iconography. Any skeleton is kind of (laughs) Day of the Dead. You know, that's a a tall order, um, basically, because not every skeleton is related to Day of the Dead, but it is related to a philosophy of death um, Mm -hmm. that maybe is shared by uh, by and large uh, in Mexico. So, you know, death as being something that is not just accepted, but um, lived with, uh, ridiculed, uh, made fun of, popularized, you know, uh, death is something that is kind of essential uh, to life uh, in Mexico and in many shapes and, and forms. But I don't want to forget, um, and this is a part that maybe not a lot of people know, um, who haven't experienced Day of the Dead, that it's also very political in many ways. Mm. And so this is where it becomes really fascinating for me as an art historian. If we were in Mexico City right now, we would not just kind of visit these altars and see a kind of sacred um, ephemeral production. We could also see very kind of political altars as well that have been conceived by different artists that are kind of responding to some crisis um, in the country. And it could be um, uh, 
kind of assault on women, for example, and there could be an altar that speaks directly to that, uh, to women's rights in the country, or it could be as it was when I lived in Mexico City um, some seven, eight years ago, you know, an altar that is demanding that the government do something about the 43 disappeared, right? The 43 um, teacher uh, training students that were uh, kidnapped and, uh, and, and executed, and the government wasn't responding to the demands of more information on this. Um, so many artists kind of took advantage of the Day of the Dead celebration to install these very poignant uh, altars uh, that were experienced uh, by a public uh, as well. So I would say that the first artist to really kind of popularize this death political imagery is um, Jose Guadalupe Posada. And he was uh, a kind of newspaper illustrator and he would make these kind of calaveras, these death images that are very much alive in order to criticize the uh, government regime, the dictator uh, regime at that time. And it, he would do so in a very kind of biting way that was also hilarious that kind of utilized um, death imagery. But you could see that same kind of death imagery in, of course, Coco most recently, um, but also uh, classic films like Serge Eisenstein's uh, Que Viva Mexico, um, you know, beautiful Russian film. And, and the director was obsessed with Mexico's obsession with death and wanted to capture it. Uh, in these vignettes as well. In art history, also with uh, some of our mo more popular artists uh, from the 20th century, like Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, uh, they also deal with death. And in fact, I just saw uh, the uh, Frida, Frida Kahlo film with uh, Selma Hayek uh, the other day, and there's a lot of that kind of death references um, in the film as well and the kind of very particular Mexican relationship to death uh, is not just referred to in her artwork and in this film, but also in the music and in the soundtrack that's very kind of cleverly uh, used for it as well. What I find so interesting about this holiday is not often do we find performative or cultural works of art that I guess that we acknowledge that take place in such a private setting as well as a public setting. I feel like when we're just talking about uh, more well-known, just like visual performative works of art, they take place on a public scale because that's kind of the point of them. That's the mm -hmm. point of your performance. But uh, the fact that they can take place so publicly, so politically, but then internally for you and your family and that private aspect, I find super interesting. And I think also just in terms of ontology, I find it interesting because hauntology or being haunted is so loaded and I think it so often has that negative connotation to it. Like if you're being haunted by something, it's like not good, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. But and maybe you can elaborate for us then. I think hauntology is a, is a little bit more broad uh, in that manner just because you're haunted by something, especially in the scope of, of the visual cultural history that we're talking about today. It's not always... A negative thing. So my question for you is, how does Dios de los Muertos connect to the field of hauntology? And should they be considered in the same realm? Or should we kind of take them bit by bit separately? 
I think they could be considered. They could also not be considered <laughs> in the same realm. You know, I could see how there's some overlap and how pentology might be useful for studying, um, you know, absence and how absence is made present um, and also studying ephemeral kind of, uh, kind of alter productions both in the private sphere sphere and in the kind of public square and what they mean in, you know, for each community, the kind of personal home, but also the uh, kind of civic uh, community as well. But um, I think there's limits to ontology in that case for the reasons that you mentioned, um, because uh, Day of the Dead is two days, basically, right? So it's not, you know, this... Um, and it's a it's a kind of celebration that's very much delineated by the living, not by the dead, uh, right? So we are kind of prescribing it, who we choose to put on the altar, um, what kind of wax or flowers or types of food we leave on the altar. The dead have very little say <laughs> in Day of the Dead in a way, whereas hauntology, uh, that's not the case in a way. Um, there is a, a kind of more uh, of an agency, I find, that's granted to the absent in ontology, uh, weirdly, than in Day of the Dead. Uh, Day of the Dead is um, a celebration that is really orchestrated by the living. Um, and, uh, and it's uh, kind of therapy, I think, for, for the living as uh, much as anything else. So... Um, you know, I think ontology um, may be useful, but not entirely, uh, perhaps. That is so fascinating. When I think so often of other forms of like death portraiture, death works of art that's constructed by human beings, that really does make me consider ontology a little bit. Um, I was looking so much at death portraiture and the coming about of photography. And I remember we talked about that um, last year, but how that is really constructed by the human being for the human being to mm -hmm. like honor that dead person. It's not really like, we know that it's a hoax. We know that this like floating angel or this guy that coincidentally might look like Abraham Lincoln, wink, wink, like isn't really this haunted spirit. It, it, it's for us. It's constructed by us. So that's, that's mm -hmm. such a key way to look at it. Go ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, just thinking about like this idea of curation also is like really interesting and in thinking about like the connections between art history, because I think that like many of us who study this have this like innate response to want to like fit things nicely together or like, you know, make something presentable in that way. And I think what you just said is such an interesting, I don't know, way to think about the two differences, how ghosts act upon us as spirits and as presents in in whatever form but then how we curate the experience of ghosts and spirits and that's so wild yeah. i love it yeah i don't want hauntology to to just be like a one-off like I, I don't i want us to to think about it like more critically and even if i i think back to our prior conversation i think we were considering it in that way those death portraitures in that hauntology scope but but that's such a an interesting and new way for us to to look at it. Awesome. Um, you know, I'm very taken with the work of Titus Kafar, who has um, done these amazing portraits that show benefactors or these kind of elite white males, um, you know, looking 
out onto their private estates and whatnot. And he's literally kind of peeled these away to reveal like servants and enslaved uh, members of that whole kind of retinue. And in a way, kind of peeling back the the layers to reveal um, the spectral, you know. And mm-hmm. so I think that one could think about that process um, as a practicing artist and what it means to peel back layers and, you know, make the absent present, um, if only through trace, but also think about it as uh, an intellectual exercise as well as historians, you know, and how we do that. How can we do that, um, basically? Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything that we haven't asked you about Dia de los Muertos or hauntology that you absolutely want our listeners to be aware of? Well, um, not uh, especially so, but there is this um, kind of idea in Mexico, at least, for uh you know, there's Day of the Dead, and that's a celebration, as we've explained. But there's also this fixation with uh, things that scare you as well. Um, so just because Day of the Dead is happy doesn't mean that, you know, this is a country that doesn't get scared <laughs> often. <laughs> and so I'm interested in these stories that are kind of designed to, uh, in a way, deal with trauma, but also to kind of scare, um, you know, contemporary audiences. And La Llorona uh, is one of these stories. La Llorona is, a, uh, to put it in its simplest terms, is a woman who's a ghost who goes around, you know, the land kind of wailing and crying over her dead children whom she drowned. Um, out of frustration and desperation. And there have been sociological and kind of historical studies of this um, tale that it has pre-Hispanic roots, um, but it's also a story, I think most would agree, that is born of the conquest, right? Because it's always this told as this uh, indigenous woman um, who's uh, who's in a fit of rage or uh, dejection over her husband, sometimes described as a conqueror, as a Spaniard, or as a landowner. So it's about miscegenation in a way, um, maybe violence, but uh, also infanticide. And the kind of wailing that she does and, and moaning for her children is very eerie. And in a way, this female ghost is a kind of mother um, a kind of uh, goddess and a kind of virgin Mary in, all in one, right? That's um, one is kind of wanting, but is always uh, unable to really grasp. And La Llorona is very popular in uh, Mexican culture, but also in other parts of Latin America now. And um, as a child, you're told this story, um, basically, as a warning to not kind of go off into the dark, you know, to stay by your parents' side. If you don't stay with me, La Llorona is going to get you, right? And you know exactly what your parents mean. You could almost hear the ghost. Uh, So you're not going to wander off too far. And it's made its way into popular culture um, as well in just kind of representations, but also in music. 
So I'm interested in music, um, you know, lately and how music could kind of convey the spectral as well. And um, La Llorona is a song that's been kind of arranged and performed since um, probably it traditionally for a very long time, but formally since the 1940s and very famous composers or, or singers um, have sung it, uh, Chavela Vargas, but also Lilo Downs. Uh, more recently, Joan Baez uh, sings a version of the song as well. And, um, and it has a different effect depending on who's the person singing it. Um, and it's probably not coincidental. I don't know if you guys uh, know the band Beirut, but Beirut also has a song called La Llorona and they're from um, you know, New Mexico. And La Llorona is uh, also very eerie on that, on that album and uh, kind of plays on these kind of Oaxacan uh, notes as well. So music uh, cannot be ignored. You know, Day of the Dead, spectrality, hauntology, uh, the paranormal. There's also a soundtrack to that. Um, so it's a kind of multisensorial uh, sphere that we're dealing with. This is fun for me because I was just talking about immersive art today uh, at work. So that's definitely been on my brain. But we did talk about the performative aspect of it, the, the ritualistic aspect to it. But even just thinking about music in a Western sense or Western cinema sense uh, with the arrival of Squid Games, I've been oh, hearing right. a lot about the music and the soundtrack to this new show and how... Uh, we are so triggered by these two notes and how it, it's like we're like an animal like trained to hear a sound and like we know we're gonna like get a, a treat for like hearing the sound like we hear these two eerie notes and we're instantly gonna be like triggered by that and know that this is what the tone is and I know exactly what I should be feeling because of that and it's this very like sensory like <laughs> traumatic curated response it's super weird and I I, I think that's probably is about as creepy as it can get. <laughs> um, but Christina, you did just tell us a little scary story, but <laughs> we like to end the show on a fun question. So we were wondering if you did have a favorite ghost story or if you have a favorite scary movie that you wanted to share with us. Well, that was my favorite scary story, La Llorona. Um, there are also kind of funner ones that border on just you know, being ridiculous, like the goat sucker, the chupacabras. If you're from, you know, the Southwest, particularly Texas and you know, Northern Mexico, you'll remember from like maybe two decades ago that uh, this is like a, you know, quasi goat like animal that would feast like a vampire on unsuspecting people and, you know, suck their blood out or whatnot. And it just got really ridiculous, you know, the tales of this uh, apparition of this goat sucking beast. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we did with it what we always do. We made fun of it. Uh, I don't know if there were memes at the time, uh, because this is quite a, you know, many years ago. But if, uh, if it happened today, for sure, there would be, you know, memes of it and we would be ridiculing uh, the whole notion. That response, that kind of uh, comedy, the laughter, the laughing at death and the laughing at what's 
what otherwise scare you um, is also something that I find kind of worth studying, right? Um, that, uh, that, that kind of way of dealing uh, with the unknown. I deal with the paranormal all the time um, because uh, in what I study, it's not just, you know, charges of idolatry that continue uh, during the colonial period uh, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, even 19th centuries. Um, the idol is never fully vanquished. It's always around the corner. You know, it's always being hidden uh, behind altars, but also with witchcraft uh, and these accusations of witchcraft. And uh, some of them are kind of creepy. So my favorite kind of creepy story is my own. I was in an archive in Mexico City, uh, in the Inquisition archive at the um, general archive of, of the nation. And there was a case I was following about a woman who was accused of uh, kind of conjuring up the devil. And she went into a church uh, with a man and she was spotted by a servant who was at the door and kind of witnessing all this. And the two went in and went to the altar, turned the uh, crucifix upside down, uh, disrobed to the waist. And according to this witness, uh, this woman who was leading chants, um, she also started marking different kind of diagrams uh, on her body and on the um, uh, the man's body as well. They continued to chant and pray what the servant said was to the devil quite clearly. And then they got some cotton balls and wiped off the designs from their body and uh, clothed, uh, left the church and locked it up. And so the servant gives this testimony. And not only that, but uh, kind of turned in to the authorities the cotton balls that were left behind with uh, the you know black ink on them or whatnot that was wiped from the bodies. And so the Inquisition file had a little envelope uh, with these cotton balls. And so I took them out, <laughs> kind of looked at them, felt them. And, you know, as a historian, I thought, oh, this is so effing cool. You know, this is great. Um, as someone who's invested in material culture, I thought that was fantastic. As a scaredy cat, I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm touching the devil. <laughs> right? It's the devil still here. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was kind of a freakish experience. And I kind of uh, couldn't wait to wash my hands uh, figuratively, literally, <laughs> you know, after that experience. Oh, my gosh, that is an APT story for the books. My gosh. <laughs> Truly, uh, the bravery it takes to have been able to do that. I would, I, nope, I would have left like, in an envelope. I'm <laughs> out. <laughs> See you later. Research over. Um, it's so Yeah, hard. like, I don't need to, the research isn't worth it. <laughs> you know, like. It's so frustrating that one, I'm just, I'm so glad that like you powered through and you didn't give in like Bianca and I would, because I get like so frustrated with myself. Like the more that I'm like so interested in all this stuff, but like, I can't do it alone. Like if I was in an archive by myself with some ghosty artifacts, absolutely not. Like that would not happen. <laughs> like I would need to like hire someone to just sit with me. And I, I feel like that would be yeah. a good gig to have for a little bit. Sit with a scaredy cat, <laughs> learn about some ghosts. It's sometimes yeah. the ghosts are not um, 
so kind of malign and sometimes they're just like any voice uh, that speaks to you in an archive, you know, and it could be a ledger that you're reading through and then there are little details that you're like so happy have been included and you almost imagine this, you know, kind of civil servant uh, putting together these inventories or ledgers and this person is speaking to you, you know, from 300 mm-hmm. years ago or whatever. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> I really need to know <laughs> that that was done, you know, with feathers. Um, this is very helpful for me as an art historian. So right. there's a kind of dialogue uh, in place um, that is uh, really beautiful in, in many respects between yourself and the dead uh, when you're in an mm-hmm. archive. Yeah, 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 that's such a lovely way to like humanize the process as a, a historian as well as you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, Christina, we could not be more grateful for you to be here with us today. We've been trying to get you on the pod for a while, so we are so excited and so honored. <laughs> um, is there anything else before we let you go that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Anything exciting that you have coming up or that you want to plug? Well, I just went to Mexico City. Um, you know, last week, I was there for a couple of weeks, I just returned. And I was interested to see kind of what types of celebrations would be taken. Well, first of all, I was interested to see if it still existed. You know, we've been in our pandemic bubble, um, kind of in isolation, and one almost wonders, like, is the world still there? And so it was nice to get on a plane and nice to be in this like sprawling metropolis of 20 million plus people. And to be reassured that indeed it still exists, the world is still there. And cities like Mexico City, I'm sure every major capital is not just, uh, has not just survived, but it's doubled down and has committed to thriving. Mm -hmm. And you could feel this energy and it was so beautiful to feel, um, so alive. And so it was the best, uh, you know, research trip um, that I could have taken. It was really wonderful. I want to encourage everyone (laughs) to, whether it's Mexico City or Rome or New York or, you know, anywhere, you know, to make those trips um, and to kind of be reaffirmed that uh, we're not just survivors. We're also going to double down and we're going to thrive. Mm -hmm. And so that is uh, one thing I would like to leave you all with, but also because it's homecoming weekend, um, I want to wish everyone a happy homecoming and wish our football team luck against Kansas. And um, and I hope everyone enjoys the weekend. Yay. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Christina, thank you so, so much for being here today. If you have any questions for our special guest, you can always email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com. We're on all the social media platforms at artpoptalk. And if you like this content and you want to hear more, you can donate to our Buy Me a Coffee account, which is in our link tree on our website. Um, And with that, we will talk to you all next Tuesday. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. (laughs) Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.